we are continuing in our study of this theme, one another, that we find in the pages of the New Testament and a study of community, how we do relationships in community. And uh, we're grateful uh, for the journey that we've been on together. And we're looking at one more of those elements here today. So let's bow our heads in prayer as we take a look at this passage. Jesus, we're asking that you would please send your Holy Spirit. Uh, We'd be fooling ourselves to think that all that's about to happen is just uh, human minds trying to understand human words. There's much more about to happen. That is that you promise to be present in your word and you promise us the power to be transformed by the grace of the gospel. So please come and change us. Uh, We can barely imagine what we could be both individually and communally the grace of God were really to touch down. So we pray that you would fire up our imaginations of faith, that you would change us in the direction of what you desire us to be. You do all this for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. During my senior year of college, a group of friends and I took a short hiking trip uh, not too far away from here in the Shenandoah Valley. And there were lots of memorable moments in that trip, but one of the things that I remember most was the 50-pound backpack that I had to carry around through all the different miles that we journeyed on. We were deep in the woods, very deep, and so everything that we needed for those three days and nights had to be loaded up on our backs, sleeping bags, tents, trail mix, gallons of water, and more trail mix, of course. And at first, that heavy burden was a badge of honor. You know, somehow it made me feel like a true mountain man. But eventually, it kind of passed that point of symbolic value. (laughs) Pretty soon, especially while climbing over rocks, over fallen trees, across rivers, or laboring up a, a steep, steep hill... I began to complain in my heart, feeling every ounce and every pound of that heavy burden, every step I took. I wonder if that might be a little bit of a picture of the way that some of us feel. Like we're carrying on our backs the heavy burdens of broken relationships or of weighty decisions that you're facing or of stressful jobs or maybe the lack of a job or unpaid bills or medical uncertainties or fears or sadness or disappointment, all of which can feel like a literal hundred-pound sack on our backs can feel like a literal burden on your back. Some of you feel it today. Some of us feel that way today. All of us feel that way on some days, don't we? Which is why it rings as almost immediate relief, almost immediate relief, just to hear the Word of God say, as it does in verse 2, Carry each other's burdens. 
And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You were not meant to carry that burden alone. Carry each other's burdens. These words are found towards the end of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And at the beginning of the previous chapter, chapter 5, Paul writes one of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Christ in his death and his resurrection has purchased for us freedom from the debilitating power of guilt because of our sin. He's purchased for us freedom from the hopeless endeavor of trying to earn God's love by our good deeds. He's given us freedom from the fear of God's judgment. You can finally relate to God as a loving father at last. If you put your faith in Jesus, this is the great promise of the gospel. You can finally be free. Don't you want that? Then the apostles' attention quickly turns toward how we're to spend this newfound freedom. He says, but don't use your freedom to indulge yourself selfishly. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You see, the gift of freedom in Christ should make us more loving as we no longer need to expend all of our attention and energy upon ourselves, our guilt, our needs, our well-being, our self-preservation. No, now you're free. God's got your back eternally, and so you can turn your attention to those around you. Serve one another, finally, in love. The gospel of grace and the spirit of God gets a hold of your life and it begins to change our relationships. It changes how we relate to one another, Paul says. And it's in this context that we hear this invitation and exhortation, carry each other's burdens. But what does that really mean? What does that really mean to carry one another's burdens? And how can we do that? Well, we're going to look at those two basic questions in our remaining time. What is it? And how do we do it? What and how? So first, what is carrying one another's burdens? Well, I think first of all, it involves looking out across the community, both in the church and outside of the church, and being able to picture every single person around you with some kind of burden on their back. Can you almost use your imaginations and picture each other with that image? See, because you know it's true. Everyone in this room at least has a decent-sized backpack invisibly hanging off their shoulders. But you know it's also true that some, some of us have a gigantic, gigantic mound of struggles that's so heavy that that person, if you could just look more, more closely, even if they might have a smile on their face, that person, in fact, is weighed down and crawling on the ground. 
Do you see that in each other? The burdens that we bear. Do you see each other in this way? And so we're called to approach one another and say, let me carry that with you. Come on, come on. Let, 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 me, let me get under that with you and bear some of that weight together to lighten the load for you, to give each other relief, to give each other strength and hope. And even as we've talked about over the last several weeks, this means doing this by weeping with those who weep. We do this practically by sitting in the ER with a friend, as some of you I know did even this past week. We do this by cheering each other on when your knees feel weak, and when your hands lay limp at your side. We cheer each other on. Some of you ran the rock and roll half marathon last weekend, and You told me personally what it meant to you to have friends showing up and and rooting for you on the roadside as you ran along. How much more do we need mutual support and cheers for the marathon of life? And so many of you have done this for me personally as well. When our kids were born, each one of them, in fact, you providing meals for us to eat taking care of that practical need. When I've struggled with discouragement in ministry, you've written me personal notes of encouragement, not even knowing how badly I needed it. Or when I've struggled with burnout, as I have at different times, you've enabled me to take time off. You have carried my burdens with me, lightened the load, got up underneath it together with me. So who else needs that ministry, that kind of care? Who's going to share the load when life feels just too heavy for the person right next to you? Jesus tells us, come to me, he says, all you who are weak and weary, and I will give you rest. He will give you Rest and bear your burdens. But don't you know that he also calls us his body? And it's through us that he actually bears our burdens. He bears our burdens through our ministry of bearing one another's burdens in love. Although too often we try to do it all by ourselves. No one is meant to carry their burdens alone. And yet this is not all that Paul has in mind in this passage, in particular in verse 2. And in fact, this practical sharing of the heavy loads of life doesn't actually appear to be its primary meaning. meaning. When we read this verse in context... Looking at the verses immediately before and immediately after, we notice that the main burden that Paul is talking about is the burden of our sin. Look at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch out for yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. 
You see, in Paul's minds, by the time he gets to this command, exhortation, invitation to bear each other's burdens, what he has in mind is this, that what's in that heavy backpack that we so often carry is our guilt before God. It's the memory of our struggles with sin and screw-ups, maybe even in years in the distant past. What's in that heavy backpack is our struggle with sin, and therefore to carry each other's burdens, therefore also means carrying a, a sister or a brother before the mercy of God because they're barely able to get to him themselves. It means calling each other out on the sin of our lives, but then carrying each other right into the arms of our Savior. It means restoring thirsty sinners like you and me to the overflowing rivers of God's grace. We're called to carry one another's sin burdens, guilt burdens, soul burdens as well. So how do we do this? I mean, in real terms, what does this look like? Well, first of all, it means providing comfort. Comfort. You might notice in verse 1, we're talking about situations in which someone is caught in a sin. And don't misunderstand that language. Caught doesn't mean that the practice of the church should mean sort of setting up traps so that people are revealed to be sinners, or doesn't mean sort of peering around the corner and policing one another's every activity. That's not what it means. It's simply talking about a person that either is found to be in some pattern of sin by some circumstances, or that they themselves come to some conviction, some realization that they have been in the wrong. But the passage doesn't tell us whether this person, upon such a realization, has actually taken the step to repent, to admit their wrong, to ask God for forgiveness and mercy. We don't know if they've taken that step. In this first case, we're called to comfort those who have humbly admitted their fault and to remind them of God's promise. We need to be a community in which if people have been found to be in sin and they have said, my goodness, I've been wrong. Your job is to immediately to come before them then urge them, plead with them to believe the promises of the gospel. To insist that they believe that Romans 8.1 is true. That therefore, there's now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for you. Dear sister, please believe this. You come to that person and they say, well, I think I've confessed before God that I have really messed up in this sort of way. And you say, 1 John 1, 7 and 8 is true. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just To forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You don't need to worry about this anymore. It's been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And you tell each other. You tell this person that says, look, I've gone to God with my sin and my brokenness. And yet I just feel like he's frowning at me. 
I just feel this, this vague feeling of, of his displeasure over me. And you tell him, no, 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 no. If you are in Christ, if you've been united with him by faith, you need to believe in Romans 8.31 that, that God is for you and not against you. And you need to let that dispel the clouds of doubt from the person's heart and mind. You need to cast away their fears and hesitations to come back into the presence of God with full confidence and assurance of faith. You need to help one another believe that there's no sin that's too great. And there's no distance that you've run too far. For God not to be able to receive you with open arms and to forgive you of all your sins. As he tells us in Isaiah 43, I remember your sins no more. So we need to comfort each other with these promises. Believing that God's grace is greater than all of our sins. Because people are Dying daily because of the debilitating power of guilt and shame. And that's not just a problem of people in their own souls bearing unhealth and shriveling before the presence of God even as they bear the name of Christ. That's also a problem of community because don't you know half the time we're running away from one another is because we're running from God. We don't want the peering gaze of other people because we're afraid of the peering gaze of God. Sometimes the first step that we need to have confidence to be friends with one another is to know that by grace you have the friendship of God. So comfort one another. As Martin Luther in the 16th century wrote about this passage, Run unto him or her. Reach out your hand. Raise him up again. Comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. Comfort one another. And in fact, even if people haven't yet admitted their sin, they've been caught in it but haven't yet confessed it, we still point them to the promises of the gospel, don't we? That God will forgive your sins. That God does still promise to have mercy on you, offers you grace upon grace. So please turn back to him. Please confess your sin. Please be honest before him. And we do this even before their hearts have been softened in order to see their hearts become soft. Because don't you know, God's word cannot be more true and practical regarding this, that it's ultimately God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his wooing words of love, his promise that, yeah, this is tough to go into this cauldron of honesty, of confrontation, to see your sin and all its terribleness. But guess what? I've got forgiveness and strength and renewal waiting for you on the other side. Will you go there with me through the valley to the mountain peaks of the glory of God's grace? Comfort one Another. Also, though, correct one another too. And especially if the person has not yet repented or turned from their sin, correct one another. This word that Paul uses in this passage, restore, restore, it's actually a medical term for setting a, a broken bone. Setting a broken bone. 
You see, this is an invitation to love each other, isn't it? Uh, to, to do what's good for one another and calling each other to see the impact of the selfishness and the power of sin in our lives. As the old Puritan John Owen once wrote so provocatively, helpfully, be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is a way in which we're, we're helping one another to unroot the deep root of sin. To find healing from the, the powerful cancer of the evil in our hearts. This is love for us to put a mirror in front of one another and to see the sin of our own hearts that we so easily deceive ourselves around. But not just a mirror, but then to open it up and make it a window so that you can see the majesty of God's grace and the cross of Christ. And so we're called to see that if someone is doing something wrong, that we're sure that we're not simply standing around doing nothing. I mean, this is hard, right? That we're not just saying that it's none of our business. You know, a lot of us are fearful, tiptoeing around things. You know that someone's sort of making shipwreck of their lives, or maybe you see a habit or a pattern in their lives, and you're sort of like, oh yeah, that kind of, yeah, that's not great, but we got to stop being enablers. Uh, we need to stop being fearful to have hard conversations. We're going to talk about what that looks like in just a second, but we're fearful, and sometimes it's because we're fearful of coming across as what we often call judgmental, but don't you know that confronting a person is actually a sign of respect, where we're actually believing that they can handle it. We actually are believing that they can change. We haven't given up on them. We're actually believing that it's loving to talk through things, not to avoid or to keep silent, which actually is a form of disrespect for the person's dignity and moral ability. So will we respect each other? Will we love each other? Will we actually step in? What does this look like? I think this passage tells us a couple practical things that we need to correct truthfully, humbly, gently, and vigilantly. First, truthfully. It means, of course, that we're having conversations that invite honesty. Uh, We're speaking honestly with one another about our sins, but this also means speaking in accordance with the truth of God. This is what I mean by this. We need to be very careful that our correction is not just about our opinions. It's not just about our feelings about the person. It's about whether or not they actually have sinned according to the word of God. We need to be careful not just to be prosecuting people on the basis of religious tradition or, the, or religious opinion, but rather on the basis of God's word itself. And so this raises a question, well, which sins? Which sins? And the answer is all the ways in which not a hierarchy, not, not just some and not others, not that we wink at others, but we are lovingly coming into each other's lives anywhere where we see each other falling short and then resisting the grace of God. In other words, when was the last time that you talked to someone about their critical spirit? 
The Bible has a few things to say about that. A person maybe that's always picking political fights or always criticizing their family members with no hint of humility. It's not that we can't be honest about these things, but no hint of humility. When was the last time you talked to someone about their greed or their materialism? Which, as someone has noted, is not only the excessive love of money, but also the excessive anxiety about it, too. Ephesians 5.3 couldn't be clear. Among you, there must not be even a hint of greed. When was the last time that you talked to someone, one of your friends, perhaps, about their habit of sleeping with their significant other, or someone other than their spouse, or in their mind's By looking at pornography. Of course, understanding that this wouldn't be simply because God is a prude, but rather because God desires you to experience life. And he gives sexuality as a gift in relationships that are bound by whole life commitments. Body, mind, soul, and heart, and everything in between. Which means it's meant to be shared in the covenant of marriage. Or when was the last time that you Talk to someone that just seems to be complaining all the time. Just complaining. And you just see their hearts shriveling up before your very eyes because there's not a single thing that they let go without saying something sour about. And you know you've heard Philippians 2.14 say, do everything without grumbling or arguing. And speaking of arguing, when was the last time we confronted people about cutting people down with sarcasm or harsh words? And maybe you just see it before you, the way that they're destroying relationships in their home or in the church or even at their workplace. Or maybe a person that's developed a habit of of getting plastered on the weekend. And of course, we have these words in scripture about drunkenness that we find in Ephesians, but not because alcohol is bad, but because of the way that we use it. As a form of escape or relief or some form of counterfeit freedom that Christ alone was meant to give you in fullness and in truth. And because, you know, when we're hammered, you do a lot of other stupid things too. (laughs) Amen. When was the last time that we talked to one another about the ways in which A friend looks down upon lower-income neighbors. People that don't have as much as one person or another. Forgetting that Proverbs 17.5 says, Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. When was the last time we talked to someone about the way in which you perceive they might be making an idol out of their work? Working not just too much, but in a way that makes them pay attention only to the perceived value of their work, forgetting all of their family and their friends. We bring these things to one another, not as an act of condemnation, not to crush one another, but for their good. To bring them to a place of freedom from the clutches of sin. Every single one of these things that I just named, you know, can be understood as a deep commitment to me and myself and the rules that I get to make that work for me. Who doesn't want to be free from self-centeredness? This is why we approach one another, why we correct one another, 
and why we do this in love, but also in truth. Next up, we correct humbly. We correct humbly. Verse 3 says this, if anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Right? Paul's talking about pride. He's very clear. We should not correct other people with a spirit of self-righteousness and condemnation. Well, well, what do you mean by that? Well, where you're kind of telling someone that they did something wrong, but it's sort of with this attitude of like, gosh, how could you screw up like that? Or, man, well, you got yourself into this mess, but I'm just going to let you know. Or, uh, I'm going to tell you this, but make sure that you understand that we don't really like those kinds around here. There's a way in which we can correct people with pride, self-righteousness, and condemnation. And some of us think that that's kind of just what it's supposed to sound like and feel like. And so you're always going around rebuking and correcting each other, not realizing that you're doing it primarily out of pride. You might even say, well, that's sort of my calling. I call people out. That's kind of what God called. No, 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 that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a spiritual gift of habitual rebuke, right? we got to stop deceiving ourselves. We shouldn't correct each other with that sort of spirit. We also shouldn't be correcting each other with eye-rolling exasperation. Sort of as if we're sort of, uh, we think we're above what they've done. Or, or we're above even needing to tell them, why should I have to, it's beneath me to have to explain this to this person. I shouldn't have to tell them this or talk to them about this thing is arrogance. It's arrogant to think and to feel that way, isn't it? What's the alternative? Humility, right? The humility that says, I'm the chief of sinners. No one's messed up bigger than I have. And no one needs the grace of God more than I do. It's the humility that Jesus invited us to when he said, look, take the log, the the, the tree trunk out of your own eye before you start talking about the little speck or splinter in the other person's eye. Deal with your own sin first and come kneeling before the person before you come to correct and to talk talk to them. Come as chief recipients of mercy as people who ourselves have been continually restored to the mercy and the grace of God. That'll change your tone, won't it? That'll change your posture, won't it? You see yourself as a sinner saved by grace. You'll approach one another a little differently. Namely, thirdly, you might correct more gently. Paul says this very explicitly, verse 2, restore that person Gently, Gentleness, of course, was named as a part of the fruit of the Spirit in the previous chapter. This is a spiritual quality. It doesn't just mean talking with a whisper. It doesn't mean just being polite. It means having a, a, a heart that is humble, that's not out to cut down, that's receiving the person fully as a sinner and bearing within your heart the same mercy of God that you yourself have received from God. Martin Luther describes this work of loving correction, this special type of burden bearing, 
as bringing a fatherly and motherly affection to a person. I mean, what a great word, right? That when you're, what does it mean to be gentle in your correction? It means coming to them like a mommy and a daddy would, caring for their child. Uh, Sure, bringing truth and correcting, but doing it in a way that's for their good. Paul, in verse 1, addresses the Galatian Christians as brothers and sisters. You see, he's talking about a family kind of love here. What else does it mean to correct gently? Well, I think it means asking questions, not just making declarations. Brother, it seems to me that you've been doing this I've been noticing, sister, is that th- this has been sort of an emerging pattern in your life. Is this true? Have you seen the same thing? Can you tell me more about this? Is this something that anyone has actually spoken to you about before? Is it something that you are aware of yourself? Ask questions rather than just throwing down the gauntlet at each other and bring it one thing at a time. Not overwhelming each other, but gently. Dealing with a thing that can be handled in this conversation and maybe another thing in the next. Not overwhelming the person because God doesn't overwhelm us either. He's so gentle. Do you know, do you realize God knows everything that's screwed up in your life right now? There's about four million and six hundred and seventy five thousand three hundred and twenty one things that God could list off right now about things that I need to be working on. But you know how gracious the Holy Spirit is with me? He convicts me about one thing. And then tomorrow, one other thing. And he doesn't go for 40,000 in one day. God is so gentle. Have you experienced his gentleness in this way? Well, bring that same kind of gentleness to one another. And I think part of this gentle confrontation or correction also involves correcting people personally and privately. As Matthew 18 tells us that when there's an issue between people or when someone has sinned either against you or against another person that you're to go and tell them that they've done something wrong but you do it face to face and privately. You don't start talking about all that they've done. You don't post it on social media. You don't broadcast it to the entire community. And you don't even primarily and first and foremost go to your church leaders either. Not because we're not willing to walk with you on it, but we're trying to preserve the integrity of relationships so that we can become a community that's not talking about people, but talking to people. If someone has been struggling in a certain way with sin, generally speaking, you should not be talking about other people with it, about it, before you're talking directly with them. That doesn't mean that there's not room for processing, especially if you have been the one that's sinned against. And it doesn't mean that there's not some room to seek wisdom as to how to best approach the person. But you understand what the Bible means here. Beware of gossip. Beware of talking about as a way to inflame your self-righteousness. Rather, humble yourself and speak too, even when it's hard. This too is part of our gentle speech with one another, talking privately and 
personally. And of course, there are exceptions to all of this. People that are hard-hearted and will not listen. And Jesus says, in that case, you need to bring in other people when they prove to be resistant and stubborn of heart. There are wolves in the community, Jesus tells us. And so they mean to, to deceive They mean to manipulate, and so you take different strategies with such people, or people that have committed crimes. Of course, you need to deal directly with certain matters, and sometimes even with officials. But even in those steps, there's a way in which you can do it gently, respectfully. There's a way in which we can do these things that preserves people's dignity, which includes the dignity of believing that one day they might be restored. They might be able to change. After all, God has changed me. And so the apostle points us then to understanding that our correction also needs to be done vigilantly. Correct vigilantly. We'll close up with this. He says, but watch yourself in verse 1, or you too may also be tempted. Watch out for yourself. You cannot... Talk to other people about their sin and to do it for their good out of love without first examining your own heart. We've already said this in so many ways as we talked about the necessary ingredient of humility and the call to do it gently. You need to know what's going on in your own heart. Watch yourselves. Paul says, or you also may be tempted. Of course, that means The ways in which by talking with other people about sin, there's a way in which we can normalize sin. You file it away in your mind and you start to say, well, what's the big deal anyway, right? Everyone seems to be doing it and one day you find yourself doing it too. You got to be careful, right? But secondly, I think he also means watch yourself because of the temptations of pride and a judgmental spirit and self-righteousness and distance. And here he says, and Verse 4, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. And here, this is just this invitation to understand that each of us needs to understand ourselves as being accountable before God. This is part of his desire to see us be more humbled, right? That we need to test our own works. We need to understand that we are responsible to God for our own behaviors and attitudes and desires. And even we individually will need to give an account to God for these things one day. And one day each of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll carry our own moral load before God. And of course, if you're in Christ, then Jesus will have proven to have taken that load upon his own back giving you mercy and grace, a gift of love. But of course, the Apostle Paul here is saying, look, you got to know that you are a sinner, deserving judgment, though saved by grace. And unless you're aware of that, you cannot rightly love each other and restore each other in these moments of sin. We're called to be a church that loves in this way and walks with one another in this way, understanding that at the end of the day, we do this with hope. We do this with confidence because Jesus carried our burdens, our guilt, our sin, all the way to the cross. 
We're called to bear one another with one another. We're called to bear one another's burdens and sins precisely because Jesus was the ultimate burden bearer. And so we not only follow in his steps, carrying the load as he carried our load, but because he, in fact, has changed us and set us free and given us a new heart of love for one another so that we can actually care for each other. Again, seeking each other's restoration. Martin Luther reminds us, to close with this, that we love one another in this way, remembering that every person that is in Christ belongs to Jesus. And so we're taking care of them as people who belong to another. Luther says this, God has bestowed more on them than we have done, the life and blood of his own son. Therefore, we ought also to receive aid and comfort such people with all mildness and gentleness. We do this because our brothers and sisters belong to Jesus. We do this out of love for one another. We do this in gentleness and with humility. And we do this that we might be, at last, a more whole community. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're asking that you would come and give us grace.